Turn now in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be getting back into our series after a week away. We were blessed, of course, last week to have Pastor Lloyd Wicker with us uh, and to be preaching from Genesis 22 on the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and of God's provision of the Lamb or of the ram, excuse me. But now as we return to the book of Ephesians, it may be helpful for us to recall that with the start of this fourth chapter, Paul has really begun a transformation or a shift in the tone of the message up to this point. In chapters 1 through 3, we saw what might properly be considered the theological portion of the letter, where he's teaching us uh, many great things about who we are and what Christ has done in order to redeem us and to make us new and alive. And now he's going to be transitioning here in chapter 4, and it really this will go all the way through the end of the, of the book into chapter 6, uh, his shift is going from theology to more of the ethical portion of the letter. Uh, the por- portion of the letter where his focus is not so much on teaching us who we are or on what Christ has done, but now what kind of lives we are to live in light of all that has been already said. And this is a common feature of Paul's Letters. He will often give us what theologians call the indicative. He will indicate to us what is already true, what God has done, what God has done in Christ to raise us up and to make us alive, to justify us. And then he will transition to say, in light of this, he'll give us the imperative. So that indicative and imperative. Imperative meaning go and do, live like this. This is how our lives ought to reflect the truth that God has already saved us in Christ. And so now as we turn to the reading of God's Word, let's go again in prayer, asking for the Lord's illumination of our reading this morning. Let's pray. Our God, as we come before You, we know that our minds outside of You, and were it not for You, would be left in total darkness. Lord, we would still be dead in our trespasses and in our sins. But as it is, O Lord, you have made us alive with Christ and you have given us your Holy Spirit who alone helps us to understand truly and to see the true meaning of your word. And so, Lord, we ask humbly that you would help us this morning to read, mark, and inwardly digest your word so that we may be changed through the hearing of it. That we would be able to live more and more this new life that you call us to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 32. Paul writes this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on, the ang- on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps it's a bit of an oversimplification, but I think it's safe to say that this morning's passage can be summarized with two words. The two words are mortification and vivification. These are two words which beautifully encapsulate Paul's twin commands in this passage. Mortification and vivification. Not words that we use normally in our day-to-day lives, uh, but words that I think are helpful for us to understand and things that will help us to grasp the meaning of the passage this morning. Because as we'll see, they form the backbone of what the life of the believer looks like from A to Z, from beginning to end. So two strange words, words which you may even question uh, whether or not they are actually words. Zach, are these real English words? I don't, I've never heard these words before, maybe you're thinking. So without going into all of the etymology or the origins of these words, I'll simply just say that mortification has to do with mortifying or with putting something to death. Whereas vivification has to do with vivifying or bringing something to life. And so mortification is about restraining sin, strangling it, killing our sin. And vivification then is about living to new life, doing all that we can to nurture the new life that God has given us by His Spirit. So these two words were often used by the English Puritans in the 17th century to depict a lot of what Paul teaches throughout his letters. That we are to kill our flesh or our sinful nature. We are to bring life to this new nature which God has given to us by the Spirit. And so as we look at his instructions before us today, we can begin to see how this twofold aim is woven into the fabric of the Apostles' teaching. In verses 17 through 21, the sort of beginning of the passage, he tells the Ephesian Christians how they are not to live. How they are not to live according to the way of Christ. And what traits and characteristics and practices that they must mortify or put to death uh, or slough off, you might think of the way snakes shed their skin. He's calling them, here's how you are to live 
in Christ and how you are to take up new life and practice new behaviors. And so this, of course, helps us to see how the verses in the middle, verses 22 through 24, which are sort of the beating heart of the entire passage, Paul wants us to see here a depiction then of what this uh, looks like to mortify and to vivify. And he's reminding them of how they've already been taught, and he, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Brothers and sisters, this is the calling of every one of us who claims to be a Christian. To put off the old self and to put on the new. To die to who we once were and to live now to who we are as those in Christ. That's been the sort of the, the theme of this whole letter. Teach, Paul is teaching us who we are in Christ. In one of C.S. Lewis's classic but lesser known books, The Great Divorce, we come across a character in the story who is tormented by a little red lizard who sits on his shoulder and constantly whispers into his ear, mocking him and tearing him down again and again. And this lizard, of course, represents the sort of indwelling sin that we all have and battle with in our own hearts. And so as the man with the lizard comes into the scene, he is met by a brightly burning angel who quickly asks him if he would like to have the lizard silenced. Thrilled then by the prospect of this momentary peace and quiet, the young man replies, of course I would. But with this, the angel responds with a rather grim reply. Then I will kill it, he says. And it's here that we're met with a twist in the story. While at first, the enthusiasm to the... <coughs> excuse me. He, he, he met this angel's reply with enthusiasm and with joy. Now, the threat of the lizard's death begins to terrify him. And he begins to rethink everything. And so to him, this seemed far too drastic. It seemed too final uh, for what he wanted. And so he changes course and he attempts to divert the conversation and to throw the angel off course. But of course it doesn't work. The angel sticks to his guns and he presses him again, now really getting to the heart of the issue. Do you want him killed? He asks. And so from here we stumble then into several paragraphs of back and forth where the young man tries to figure out a way to somehow pump the brakes a little bit, and it seems so drastic to him that he tries to do all that he can to come up with excuse after excuse after excuse. Maybe later, he says, uh, maybe it will happen, I'll, I'll get to it somewhere down the road. But the angel insists, and he says to him, this moment contains all moments. The choice was clear then, the time was now to have the lizard killed. Have it killed now, or you will never kill it. And so in a last gasp effort to survive, the little red lizard finally pipes up. Up to this point in the story, the lizard is inaudible to the audience reading the book. You can't hear what the lizard is saying, but now we hear what the lizard says. The lizard begins to whisper loudly in his ear, and he says this, the angel can do what he says, you know. He can kill me. 
one fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'll only be a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Shortly thereafter, however, the young man finally agrees. Albeit reluctantly, unsure as to what this will mean for him to have this lizard killed and whether he would be even able to survive with this lizard's death. The lizard's sort of saying, without me, you're not going to be what you are. You're going to be a ghost. You'll no longer be a man. But interestingly, in the story, the young man is already a ghost. It begins turning more and more into a real human once now that finally, at last, this lizard is killed. And so he goes from being pale and translucent to now becoming more real and solid once the lizard is put to death. And likewise, we see something happen to the lizard. The lizard begins to go on the floor and start shaking and convulsing and changing color and begins to grow and he becomes at last something different altogether. No longer now a lizard, but now a great white stallion. And the story is, of course, a word picture for the Christian's fight against inward indwelling sin. Like the young man, we often fully recognize that our sin is evil and wicked and that it's ruining our lives. But when it comes right down to it, we find it so difficult to mortify it, to kill it. And so we come up with all kinds of excuses or uh, mental gymnastics and schedules for why we can't do it right now and how maybe eventually, when the moment is right, we will get to it in the time to come. Maybe next week or next month when I'm on vacation or next year when my life I think will be a little bit smoother. So just as the lizard says, we can come to feel that our sin is so natural that we could not possibly live without it. And so despite how much we hate it, we can find it all too easy to justify continuing to live in sin, to make room for it in the little hidden nooks and crannies of our souls. Instead of taking the approach that the Holy Spirit, through the angel here in the story, is advocating total death to it, making war against it. But of course, the story isn't just about the death of the lizard. It's also about the life of this man. Though the lizard had claimed that the pair's relationship was natural, and that life without him was then going to be unnatural, it was in fact the lizard's death which caused the man to become not a ghost, but to become more fully human. And so the lesson of the story then that Lewis is trying to paint for us is kill the lizard and you will become more fully human, not less human. And so if we want to get a better grip on what this kind of decisive action in our lives looks like, in practice, and why we're called to it, we'll need to carefully consider just exactly how the Apostle Paul advocates for us to do so as we live in the light of God's glorious grace. And so to start with, we can see how the whole passage is built upon a contrast that he sets up between Gentiles and Christ followers. Now, to be sure, 
Paul is fully aware that he is writing to Gentile Christians. He's writing to those who, in their human nature, are not Jews. They are Gentiles. And so he's not saying to them that they need to somehow physically stop being Gentiles. He's simply telling them to stop living like the rest of the Gentile world. I really like how British pastor John Stott puts it in his commentary. He writes this. (coughs) Excuse me. The meaning of this passage is clear. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Paul is generalizing, of course, not all pagans were or are as depraved as those he is about to describe. Yet just as there is a typical Christian life, so there is a typical pagan life. When each life is true to its own principles, it is fundamentally opposed to the other. And so here we can see that in order to show us how to live, Paul uses the typical life of idolatrous Gentiles as a foil in order to draw a stark contrast for us to help us see what he's driving at, to pick up what he's laying down, as it were. And so in start, starting in verse 17, he tells us, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Though, of course, the ancient Greeks were known, well-known, even in Paul's day for their great intellectual tradition of philosophy, Paul was clear that underneath it all, they actually were intellectually broken and unhealthy, which wasn't so much of an indictment of their philosophical uh, tradition, which has its great aspects to it, but it was more of of an indictment against their general sinfulness as fallen human beings. And so he explains as much in verse 18. Paul writes, they are darkened. This is Gentiles. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated or separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. And this is an important sentence because it's full of descriptions that that can be really hard to grasp for us unless we break down the sort of logic of what Paul is writing. And so to sort of reorder what he's saying so we could follow his argument uh, logically, we could read it as follows. Due to the hardening of their hearts, they have become ignorant. And because of this ignorance, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. So this ordering then helps us to see the structure of the sort of downward spiral that's happening here. And even more importantly, it helps us to pinpoint the reason for their spiritual depravity. And it was the very top there, the hardening of their hearts. And so this description refers to their deliberate refusal and rejection of the moral light offered and made available to them in their own thoughts and consciences. And this is very similar to what Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, where he famously writes these words, For although they knew God, and here again he's talking about Gentiles, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so because they have rejected God and thus ended up with hardened hearts, they have become now spiritually ignorant. And because of this ignorance, then they are 
they are separated from the life of God. They have become darkened in their minds. But sadly, this, this sad state of affairs does not end here. In verse 19, Paul then goes on to show us the inevitable conclusion where this downward spiral brings them. And he says that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I really like how the NIV translates this. It's a little clearer. It says, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So in essence, then, what Paul is saying is that they have hit a moral rock bottom. With hardened hearts, futile thinking, darkened minds, and lives now separated from the glory of God, they cannot help but thrust themselves into all kinds of sin. The brake pads are off, essentially. Their moral compasses have stopped working, such that now, with reckless abandon, they've become prone to casting themselves into any kind of sin. They are very vulnerable to throwing themselves into all kinds of sin. Such is the way of existence then, apart from Christ. And we too might think of ways in our own day wherein people's willful rejection of the Lord has led them and is leading them even now to more and more sin and immorality. I don't think we need to think all that hard about this to understand what Paul is getting at. Just look at our world with the sort of mass shootings that are happening, it seems, almost daily. Human trafficking or drug trafficking. Children being sold into sexual slavery. Uh, We could think of sexual immorality, pornography, adultery, rampant hedonism. We could think of abortion, just on demand. We can think of total disregard for the poor and for the destitute, uh, for political violence we see happening uh, all through our country and even around the world. The list goes on and on. And such is the life now that Paul calls Christians out of. They were once pagans, and so they lived like pagans. But now that they are Christians, they must live as those who are in Christ. Like a new uniform for a new team, they have taken off that old uniform, and now they have the new uniform. They play for a new badge, as we looked at weeks ago. They are no longer to be living in the world, but they are to be called apart from it. To have new practices, new habits, and whole new way of life in Christ's new reality. And so it's here then, in verses 25 and following, that the apostle begins to sketch out an outline of what this new reality looks like, what these ethics look like in this new reality. And to really give a sense of the glory of these ethics, Paul offers us a barrage of instructions, most of which beautifully contrast the world's way of life outside of Christ with the beauty of the ethics of the way of life in God's kingdom. As if to say, instead of living like that, now you must live like this. And so in verse 25, for example, if we look at our Bibles, Paul says, having put away falsehood, the way of the worldly way of life, let each of you look and speak to each other or speak the truth with his neighbor. Verse 28, similarly, the contrast is apparent. Let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. So no longer steal, but instead doing the exact opposite of that. Work hard, he says, and now produce things so that you may share good things with those around you. Verse 29, similarly, this contrast is apparent. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, which would have been normal, Paul is implying here, in their pagan way of life, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so in all of this, Paul is highlighting the moral beauty and the integrity of the alternative reality brought into being through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's setting it up over against life apart from him, what the world looks like without God's grace. So Paul is calling all who hear his words and desire to walk with this God that we may begin living in such a way so so as to glorify and magnify the, the Lord. And as a result, to live and walk together as a living testament as the church testifying to his grace such that the whole world, all the nations would see. They would see this alternative reality lived before them by the people of God. That they would see this alternative alternative kingdom led by this gracious, amazing, sacrificial king who contrasts then very differently from the prince of the power of the air, as we saw in chapter two. And this is the king then that lavishes the riches of his grace. He lavishes new life on his people and they live in a new reality together, living together to point people to him. And so in essence, then we might say, That Christian ethics are fundamentally embedded and woven into the Christian mission. The way in which we are called to live is to be a living picture of God's moral goodness and beauty to the world. As the church, as the body of Christ, we are collectively called to bear witness with our lives, as well as with our words, of course, to the kingdom of God. Thus, there can be no bifurcation or division in our minds between the, preach, between the preaching of the gospel with our words and the preaching of the gospel with our deeds. We must commit to both, always. Our words must point the world with clarity and joy to the risen Christ. So we must preach the gospel with our words. If we do not preach with our words, we are preaching not the gospel, but we are preaching mere ethics. But we must also preach the gospel with our lives, both individually and collectively. They ought to conform to what we profess. And where they don't, well, we will need to be confessing, repenting, and surrendering ourselves to the Lord. And all of this, I think, is exactly what Paul wrote earlier in this chapter, In verse 1, if you want to look at that, Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Therefore, we might say that the big picture here that Paul is trying to convey or is trying to show us in verses 25 through 32, and really in the entire epistle as a whole, is that we we are called to live outwardly with our lives and to adorn the gospel with how we live, uh, which we have been 
We have been made new and we have been caught up into this new reality and our lives are supposed to simply now reflect that. In Christ, God has made himself a new people, the church whose identity and life together in Christ is shaped by this singular purpose of announcing and bearing witness to Christ's victorious rule and his reign as our king of all the nations such that he may or that, we, that the nations would then be drawn to his glorious light to abandon their darkness and their futility that Paul has already talked about and step now with humility and with repentance and with awe into this glorious kingdom. And so if this is the case, we might simply ask, as the church, how are we doing? How are we doing? Do we speak the truth to one another? Or do we lie and so cause damage to those around us? Are we handling our anger with godly restraint? Or do we allow it to boil over and to burn those around us? Do we steal and take from others what is not rightfully ours and fail instead to provide for the needs of those around us? Are we regularly using our words to tear people down? Or are we using them graciously to build them up, to edify them? Are we being kind and tender-hearted to one another? Or are we grieving the Spirit by living at cross-purposes with the Gospel? These are the questions We need to ask ourselves, and chances are, if you're a human being who follows King Jesus, there may be certain things in Paul's list here where you feel like you're doing pretty darn good at. But there may be others, I'm willing to bet, where you feel the Spirit's chisel of conviction hitting into you. You can feel that you have made mistakes and you have failed to live up to what these words call us to. And so where the fe- we feel the Spirit's conviction in our lives, we ought simply to listen to it. To confess our sins as we've already done this morning. To submit to His sovereign work that He's doing. Knowing that He desires our sanctification even more than we do. And that because He is the one who works all things according to His will, as we saw back in chapter 1, we can have confidence that He will do this. Because He wills to sanctify us, to heal us, and to glorify Himself through us. So this is our great insurance that He who began a good work will bring it to completion in you in due time for our good and for His glory. And so, brothers and sisters, with this kind of courage and conviction and by the power of the Spirit, let each one of us give ourselves then to the call of the Apostle this morning in verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. For as Paul says elsewhere, for the old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Amen.